All right, if you got your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, and 2 Samuel chapter 14, but we're going to jump straight into 2 Samuel 15, continuing our study today. Um, So if you are in a management position, or if you are in an ownership position, or a head leadership position where someone is working under you, and catch this, you have to receive complaints from time to time. This passage is a really, really important passage. In fact, um, I would say this. I've not ever really preached on this passage before. This is a passage that my wife and I, when we discuss issues in ministry over the years, this was a passage up time and time again. We've gotten to the point where we have Absalom at the city gate. This is a great lesson to take notes on, uh, and we're going to talk about uh, those who undermine faith today. Uh, those who undermine faith, individuals who, uh, who seek specifically in your relationship with God to try to go before you, uh, undermine you, and cut off your supply to the truth. And so uh, this is a really important passage that we go through today, but especially for those of you who are in management positions. It starts off with this question. You ready? Has anyone ever thrown out a comment that shook you before? Okay. Has anybody ever thrown out a comment that shook you before? Uh, shook you being specifically, you were just going about your day, and then all of a sudden uh, they say something, sometimes it's offhanded, and sometimes it's very, very intentional, where they throw something out where all of a sudden it's like a splinter in your hand where it's all you can think about. A splinter comment, a splinter is basically a very, very small uh, piece of wood or piece of metal that gets stuck in your hand, but it becomes all you can think about. Even though it's very small, uh, it really governs everything that's going on uh, throughout your day. There are certain people in your life that can say things and it doesn't mean anything. But when they say that specific thing, it sticks in your hand, it sticks in your paw, and all of a sudden you go, ooh, I really need to deal with this and I really need to navigate this. Sometimes it can be the most ridiculous thing and sometimes we can allow people to have authority in our lives or speak to, uh, speak to our lives that had no, uh, uh, that had no, they had no bearing on being able to do that. Now there's a film that gives a great example example of that. And that is the finest film in all of American cinema history, Talladega Nights, the story of Ricky Bobby. No, it's a great movie, all right? Do you remember Talladega Nights? There's a saying and a motto that Ricky Bobby has uh, throughout the movie. Can anybody tell me what that motto is? If you ain't first, you're last, all right? Remember, if you ain't first, you're last. Do you remember how Ricky Bobby gets the saying, if you ain't first, you're last? He gets it because he's 10 years old at his school. It's bring your parent to work day. His dad shows up. He's not seen him since he was born. His dad just randomly comes in for bring your dad to work day. And then he says, if you ain't first, you're last. After after that, he's thrown out of the school. He belittles the teacher. And then Ricky decides he's going to live by that statement, even though the man who has spoken it has no bearing on being able to speak that way into his life, other than just he's his father. Well, lo and behold, he lives by that terrible mantra. It gets him in all kinds of trouble. His life falls apart. And do you remember, he finally gets to see his dad again. And he says to his dad, dad, you're the one who told me if you ain't first, you're last. Remember his dad looks at him and he goes, Ricky, that's ridiculous. You could be second. You could be third. You could be fourth. He goes, heck, you could even be fifth. And all of a sudden he looks at him and he goes, well, but dad, I lived my life by that. Do you remember what the dad says? He goes, but Ricky, I was high when I said that. I mean, you listen to this thing and here's the whole point. So what am I supposed to do now? And then you watch it. The dad looks at him and he goes, well, isn't that the million dollar question? And then he starts to hitchhike down the road. Again, making horrible decisions moving forward. Listen to me. Here's the whole point. Sometimes we can end up living our life and basing our theology 
around a question that someone asked us in middle school around the lunch table that we didn't know the theological answer to, or that someone, a coworker at a random lunch, a question that they threw out at you. And I'm telling you, you hear it and you go, I don't know the answer to that question. And then all of a sudden, it causes an undermining of your entire faith. Now, here's the deal. It's not a bad thing to ask questions. Some of you work in the media here in this room. Please do not hear me say that it's undermining faith to ask questions. It's a good thing. Good questions spur faith. But to base our decisions around an individual claiming unearned authority is a really, really wicked thing. It can cause you a whole bunch of problems. Jesus calls that yeast. Remember, yeast is a little item that when you put it, a little substance that when you put it into dough, it causes the dough to go from flat like a cracker to big and puffed up. It changes the entire dynamic of bread when a little yeast is added to something that, uh, to to dough that's already in place. Now look at Matthew 16 and let's read verses uh, 1 through 11. Here's what it says. It says, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and they tested him. Underline, they tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Underline by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Jesus replied, When evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. It says, then Jesus left and went away. Now stop right there for just a second. When you read that passage, each one of our Bibles, if you have a Bible that's divided up into subtitles, the subtitles are really helpful. But sometimes it causes us to compartmentalize a verse when it's meant to be read in its entirety. Uh, It was meant to be read together. And this is one of those where if you read Matthew 16 verses 1 through 4 by itself, it's like, oh, it's never good to ask God uh, for a reaffirmation in our situation. That's not what Jesus says here. He looks at a group that in Matthew chapter 14 experienced the feeding of the 5,000, Matthew chapter 15 experienced the feeding of the 4,000, and Jesus then looks at them and the Pharisees go, hey, do it again, Jesus. If you really are God, I celebrated you when you fed the 5,000. I celebrated you when you fed the 4,000. But what have you done for me lately? I want Jesus on demand right now. If you want me to continue with my faith, you better give me what you want. And Jesus looks and says, you just saw the changing of the seasons. You just saw, uh, again, the, the weather change. And you are able to forecast what I'm doing here. He looks and says, a wicked and adulterous generation says, Jesus, prove it to me again and again. Look at what happens in verse 5. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now stop right there for just a minute. What had just happened in chapter 14 and chapter 15? Jesus had taken a sack lunch from one and turned it into food for five to 15,000. Turned it into food for 4,000 in chapter 15. And the disciples, when they get hungry, go, hmm, I'm tempted For Jesus on demand, just like the Pharisees and Sadducees demanded in the previous verses. And Jesus says, be on your guard against that yeast. They spoke that into you. They put that splinter into your paw. Don't fall for it. Look at this next. Verse 7. They discussed among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. I love that. Jesus, aware of the discussion, asked, oh, you of little faith. Why are you talking amongst yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000? 
7,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus says very powerfully to us, when your theology is set and you and your relationship with God are firing on all cylinders and someone comes in with unearned authority and throws out a question that is meant to derail you, not to strengthen you, but meant to derail you. He says, don't allow that yeast to make its way into the dough. The word of God is such an incredible gift given to us. Because it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yet the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. So much in this world changes. In fact, the knowledge base in the country, I think, doubles every six months at this point. I mean, I'm telling you, there is so much going on. And yet his word stands the test of time, sharper than any double-edged sword. And yet the same yesterday, today, and forever. I want to encourage you. Asking good questions is not undermining, but claiming unearned authority absolutely is. If you're taking notes, write this down. Little comments that go unchecked against Scripture can do big damage to our faith. Little comments that go unchecked against Scripture can do big damage to our faith. Just to prove to you that good questions can spawn good things. Um, I had somebody who uh, uh, was a disciple in my life named Shane Kammerer. Some of you got to meet him at the discipleship conference. Shane is now uh, the head of the Baptist Collegiate Ministries at University of Oklahoma. Um, back in the day, my dad was preaching uh, at Paradigm at Texas Tech University. It was a college ministry. It was founded about 1,600 college kids on Thursday nights. And one particular night, it was one of the biggest nights in the history of the ministry. 1,800 college kids in Lubbock, Texas gathered together for worship. Shane and I were in charge of cleaning up afterwards this particular night. The church sat about there. The church was a church of about 3,500 at this point on Sunday mornings. And again, this big college ministry night where we'd experience God move. I'll never forget. Shane and I are up there. It's about 2 o'clock, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And we're staring at the church. It's a just deep calm outside. The church was over 100 years old. You've got this massive sanctuary on one side. You've got this five-story educational building on the other. You've got Broadway, the main street that's running down the side. And you can see the entrance to Texas Tech University where all these students had come. And we'd seen students receive Christ that night. I'll never forget, Shane had been teaching me in discipleship how to follow the Lord and disciple others. I wanted to be a minister. And I remember at 21 years old, we're staring at the facilities after this night that God has moved, and Shane looks over at me and he goes, hey, is that your jackpot? I said, what are you talking about? He goes, is that what you want more than anything in the world? He said, you want to be a minister? He said, do you want one day for that building, for that educational facility, for this path to Texas Tech University, is that what you desire is one day for all of that to be yours? It's stuck in my paw. It was a splinter that hit my mind. And I remember I looked at him and I go, no, man, I want a disciple. I want to be, a, I want to be in deep in my relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what I want more than anything else. He goes, good, that's the right answer. But in my mind, I was like, yeah, that's what I want. That jackpot, that's what I want. And here's what's interesting. Moment, that truth that he spoke into my heart that was in full accordance with Scripture made it to where from that day forward, I tried to mean with my heart what I had spoken to Shane with my mouth that day. I want to encourage you. 
When people speak hard truth to you, that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. When someone comes in that does not deserve authority in your life, and they try to speak to you like they are equal to God Almighty, they can end up causing a whole lot of trouble in your life, and they did not deserve to have that voice with you. That's the story of Absalom at the city gate. You're taking notes. How does an enemy go about undermining our faith? That's our big million-dollar question we're going to address today. If you are in management, this is a wonderful passage for you to know. You ready? Flip open. 2 Samuel chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 25. I told you we'd come back to these verses. Um, some of you, as we go through this, uh, are getting to hear these stories for the very first time. Uh, know that when I was younger, I did not go through the story of Absalom in its entirety until I got to seminary. Uh, this, uh, this story, though, is just so insightful. One of you turned in a card last week. I love this. Uh, one of you turned in a card that said, I really need to read my Bible more. I was genuinely angry at your spoiler of how Absalom died. I thought that was was great. And so, so just know uh, you had like 4,000 years to read this story. And so uh, anyway, just I don't feel bad about spoiling it for you. All right. This story, for some of you, you've had this picture in your head of what Absalom looked like. We're going to get to hear exactly what he looks like in verse 25 through 27. Here's what it says. In all of Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. I don't know highly praised for his handsome appearance. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish on him. All right, ladies, he was perfect, all right? It's a good-looking dude. Verse 26, whenever he cut his hair, this is where I get jealous, whenever he cut his hair, he used to cut his hair from time to time when it became too heavy for him, and he would weigh it, and it would weigh, uh, its weight was 200 shekels. 200 shekels is five pounds. He would cut off five pounds of hair. And I love this, by the royal standard. Don't you love that there was a royal standard for hair? All right, anyway, just exciting. Okay, verse 27. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. The daughter's name was Tamar, and she became very beautiful. He named his daughter, his one and only daughter, after his sister, uh, who he really based his entire life around what had taken place with her in our previous study. When you picture Absalom, he was good looking. He looked princely. And so when you study this passage that we're about to go through, he looked like someone who had authority. Uh, and uh, then we get to see that he tries to make himself puffed up even from there. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. It says, in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot. Underline provided himself with a chariot and horses, underline and horses, and with 50 men to run ahead of him. Now stop there for just a minute. In the past we studied last week, remember, he is forced into reconciliation with David before he's sorry and before David is ready. And so then he just ends up kind of isolated. Well, Absalom then comes up with this plan that he's going to try to unseat David, split the country, and take a portion for himself. How's he going to do that? By looking like he has authority, by looking like he has power, but honestly, he doesn't have any. Look at what it says there it says he provided himself with a chariot. He bought for himself a military vehicle. It wasn't issued to him. Uh, it wasn't something that served any purpose. It was just for the look. And not only that, he also gets for himself horses. Do you remember what the king's sons rode away after Amnon is murdered on? They rode away on donkeys. Donkeys were the unclean animal that were not allowed to be bred in Israel. What he's done there by getting horses for himself is showing he's the Israelite's Israelite. He's the true man of the people. And then it says he has 50 men that serve as his secret service 
to run ahead of him. These are no doubt the same 50 men that murder Amnon for him and the same 50 men uh, that end up uh, burning, Ab or burning uh, Joab's field in the previous passage. He's got a close-knit group of people, but it looks to the outsider when they walk into Jerusalem, it looks like he is somebody who is in charge. He has the look of authority, but it's not the truth. You're taking notes. How does an enemy go about undermining our faith? Number one, by leading you to believe their authority is equal to God's. By leading you to believe that their authority is equal to God's. You ever bought something and you were immediately sorry after you bought it? You ever had that happen? Some of you had that happen. Hopefully it's something small and not something big. When it's a house or a car, that's a really tough hit to take. I'll never forget, uh, back in the day, I'm, a, I'm an August birthday, I'm August 20th, and so I was the youngest in my graduating class. It's the reason I started college at 17, uh, because my birthday's August 20th, and my first day of school at OSU was, uh, was August the 18th, and so I uh, was always the youngest. That meant that all my friends got their cars before I did, and uh, uh, this is a true story. My junior year in high school, I hadn't turned 16 yet. But I still had a week where I had my parking spot. And so my friends still joke about it to this day. They all drove to school uh, that first day of school. I brought a lawn chair and I sat in my parking spot. That's a true story. Um, so I wanted my car so badly. My parents had told me, whatever you save up, they said, we'll double it and we'll buy you a car. Well, I remember thinking, cool, that should put me in the you know, $40,000 range for a vehicle. You know, I'll be able to save 20 grand this summer, I'm sure. I'm 16 years old and working as a wallpaper's assistant. Um, I saved, I saved uh, 2,500 that year. My parents made a good deal on that. I uh, saved 2,500, so I had about a $5,000 range uh, for my vehicle, and I wanted a truck. Grew up in Texas, I wanted a truck. And so we found a truck, uh, in one of the auto magazines, it was a black Chevy short bed truck, about a 1980 short bed Chevy truck. I just thought it was awesome. It was kind of sporty, had that bench seat in the front. I just thought it was great. And so I'll never forget, my dad takes me over to look at the car. And when we go to see it, I mean, again, it just looks awesome. Turn the ignition. It had the big muffler on the back, too. So, I mean, it just had that roar as you turn it on. Just I thought it was a great experience. And I remember I sit in the seat, and I'm like, Dad, this is it. This is the car that I want. It's right there at the top of the price range, but it's exactly what I want. And I remember my dad looked over, and he goes, Son, this is a lesson for you. Don't ever buy a car that you test drive first. And I said, okay. I said, surely they'll let us drive it around the block. He goes, you test drive it overnight. He said, that's the lesson that I'm teaching you on buying an older model used car. Well, the salesperson then looked and goes, oh, I don't know if I can do that, Mr. Randalls. He said, I got three other people looking at this truck today. I mean, that was probably a fat lie, all right? I got three other people looking at this truck today. And he looks at me and he goes, I think you need to make your decision right now. And I look at my dad and dad goes, um, either you'll let us take it overnight or we're walking. I'm like, but dad, he said he's got three more people, right? Three more people coming to look at this. And dad goes, we're not buying this car unless we know it's going to be able to hold together. The guy goes, let me go talk to my manager. Sneaks out. Of course, he comes back and the manager says, all right, you can take it overnight, sign all the paperwork, and then bring it back first thing in the morning to purchase it. I take my girlfriend out on a date in the truck have the greatest experience. And I'm telling you, I have all these thoughts of, oh, life is going to be so great in this truck. I'm going to have this. I'm going to drive it to school. So many good things happening in this truck. Think of all the things I could haul in this truck, right? All those different conversations. The next morning, you know what happens. Next morning, 
I asked my dad if I could drive it to the dealership, sign the paperwork. We go out, we turn the ignition, and the sucker doesn't start. It doesn't start. Not only that, when we called and had them tow it, it was a big old massive pool of oil right there in our driveway. It stained our driveway so that I was reminded every time I went outside that dad knew best, all right? Now listen, I tell you that story to say this. It's the reason that my car that I drove was a 1987 Honda Accord, all right? We, we went from completely unsensible to overly sensible, all right? Listen. If you're taking notes, write this down. Take a look under the hood before you buy what the sales associate is selling, all right? Take a look under the hood before you buy what the sales associate is selling. There are going to be some people in your life that try to tell you that your whole life you've been taught wrong or that anything you've studied in Scripture is up for debate. And I want to encourage you, take a look under the hood and see if they've really got the authority to speak into your life in the way that you're receiving it. For some of you, your faith is so fragile. All it takes is one YouTube clip, one TED Talk, and then all of a sudden you are shaken for months, maybe even years. I want to encourage you. Make sure you are giving authority to people in your life that absolutely deserve it and not to people who are trying to rob you. Um, this is the way that uh, the psalmist describes it. Save your place in 2 Samuel and flip over to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, and we're going to read Psalm 1. 1 through 6 here. Here's what the psalmist has to say. It says, Blessed is the man who does look in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, uh, whatever he does prospers. He says, when we do this, when we hold to the word of God as the truth, when we don't waver from it, we're like a tree that's planted right by the water. We not only produce fruit, but our roots are strong. We can't be torn up. We can't uh, uh, be without sustenance. Look at what happens, verse 4. It says, not so with the wicked. They are like chaff, underline like chaff. You know what chaff was? Chaff was not just hay, okay? Chaff is like the hay that you would sit on in a hayride. It's the hay that's not even worthy of animals to eat. It's just lousy. It produces no fruit. It's not even good. It's hardly good enough to eat. They're like chaff, and the wind blows them away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. When we allow someone to speak with the authority of God into our life, when they have done nothing to deserve it, when we do that, our life then becomes an illustration of why God's law is God's law. Do you hear me? I'm teaching you power if you listen. When we follow the authority of someone that does not deserve that authority, it is unearned. They are claiming something that is unearned. They puff themselves up like Absalom. When we do that, our life then becomes an illustration of why God's law is God's law. I've asked you this question a couple of times during this study, and now I'm going to ask you again. Are you giving someone authority in your life that doesn't deserve it? Are you giving someone authority in your life that doesn't deserve it? It's a powerful question for us to regularly address. Now flip back over to 2 Samuel, and let's look at uh, chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. So he puffs himself up. He's got the look. He's got the chariots. He's got the horses. He's got the 50 men. 
his secret service. Look at verses 2 through 4 here. It says he would get up early, I don't know, get up early, and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servants from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or a case could come to me, and I would see that he gets justice. Stop right there for just a minute. What he does here is there is a bottleneck that Absalom finds that everybody coming from outside seeking to go before the Supreme Court of King David, they have to go through the city gate. So what does Absalom do? He sets up shop right there at the bottleneck. And before they can get into the city to speak to David, he sets himself up and he looks like he has authority. He has the chariot, he has the horses showing he's an Israelite of Israelites, and he looks like with the 50 men surrounding him, he has the entourage that someone in leadership would have. And he calls out to them and says, you're not going to find any hope. And then the complaint never makes its way up to David's office. What he's done here is deeply, deeply wicked. He's got to make sure for his power that the complaints never make it to a place where they can be fixed. Have you ever worked with somebody like that? They're the worst. They're the worst because your organization then has problems, but you don't ever get to hear them fix it. What he has done here is so deeply wicked, and don't miss this. He has denied justice for those people. His hatred for his father is so deep that he would rather those people come to him. He then seems like he's the one who cares about them. He seems like he's the one that can do something about their problem. But instead, he has halted the natural path to David. And he has caused dissension in the country that will eventually cause civil war. How does an enemy go about undermining faith? Number one, by leading you to believe that their authority is equal to God's. And number two, by making sure you stop going to God for answers. By making sure you stop going to God for answers. People who mess with our theology seek to cut off our supply of Scripture by undermining it over and over again, by cutting off our access to godly people. And when they do that, it causes us then to isolate. And then after that isolation, we become immobilized in sin. In fact, if you want to write that down, you can. After sin isolates us in darkness, it seeks to immobilize us in darkness. The best biblical example of this is Judas. When he's with the disciples, Jesus calls him out and speaks truth into his life. But what does Judas do? He then is isolated with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he comes up with the plan to turn Jesus over to the authorities isolation, and then immobilization. After the isolation of Judas, when he makes his mistake, he then, because he's isolated from the group, immobilized from reconnecting with them, all of a sudden it takes the enemy then planting the idea that he should take his own life, and Judas ends up following suit. I want to encourage you, when you get to the point when you are isolated away from Scripture, do your best to get back into the light as quickly as possible because the quicker we get back to the truth, the less likely we are to do something truly foolish. Great movie example of that, 
Um, again, you all know I love the movie The Lord of the Rings. There's about eight movies you should probably watch in order to attend Waterfront uh, because the stories are told over and over. Do you remember in Lord of the Rings? You got Frodo who's carrying the ring. And he's got two friends while he's carrying the ring with him. One is Sam, his oldest friend who symbolizes the truth. And the other is Gollum, right? Schmeagol, all right? And Schmeagol symbolizes, this is interesting, the one who has carried the ring before. And other than Uncle Bilbo, he's the only one still alive that's ever carried the ring. And so for Frodo, Sam is the voice of truth, but Gollum says things that connect with him because he understands the burden of carrying the leadership of the ring. But Gollum is different than Sam. Sam Frodo to stay alive. Sam wants Frodo to thrive. Sam wants Frodo to be taken care of. And what does Gollum want? He wants the ring for himself. And he doesn't care how he gets it. That's just what he wants. And so finally, the way for Gollum to do that is to isolate Sam and to isolate Frodo from one another and then to immobilize him. Remember the scene where he takes him so that he can be eaten by the spider? It's a long story. You should watch the movie, all right? Or read the books. Immobilize, isolate and then immobilize. That's the goal of someone claiming unearned authority that they are equal with God, and then they tell you, and stop reading Scripture, stop studying the Lord's Word, because this is where our answers come. Every question that we've had since the beginning of human history, we truly believe with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength that the answers are here in Scripture. If someone is isolating you from God's Word, their goal is that they would become authority in your life. And for what reason? Just like Gollum, they want something that you have. Why in the world would they spend so much time with you? They want something that you have. And eventually, you may be foolish enough to give it to them. Don't do it. It's not worth it. When we live against the Word of God, we become an illustration of why it exists in the first place. It begs the question, should you bring your life into the light again? Should you bring your life into the light again? Are there any of you here today that would say, Zach, I've been isolated in darkness and I can sense that the enemy is trying to immobilize me, but you are here today and you are finally fully awake again. And then we get a final set of verses here. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. They show up wanting justice. He looks and says, oh, you won't find any here. Don't even go into the city. It's not even worth it. Now look at this. Verse 5 is truly dark. Look at what it says. It says, also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved like this, uh, behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Underline, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This is so interesting. By becoming the hub for the complaint, they had to travel all the way to Jerusalem from wherever their village was to come and to bring this complaint to try to seek justice. And what Absalom has done is denied them justice, but made them feel like their complaint was heard. That is truly wicked, truly wicked, because Absalom knows it doesn't do anything to speak to him about it. 
It does absolutely nothing. They took that journey for no reason. And they leave going, man, we can't get justice. But that Absalom is so wonderful. And he has blocked them from receiving it. That's wickedness. That's sick and twisted. And what's sad is if you're in management, many of us can think of moments where we've gotten to experience seeing this unfold. David, David needed, and by the way, this is kind of interesting. Look at verse 7, if you have it, the first little words there. It says, at the end of four years. Now stop there. We're going to go to that story next week. Four years. David could have put a stop to this, and for some reason he chose not to see it. Four years he went through this mess. If you're taking notes, how does an enemy go about undermining faith? Number one, by leading you to believe their authority is equal to God's. Number two, by making sure you stop going to God for answers. And number three, by getting you to choose feeling over Scripture. By getting you to choose feeling over Scripture. He denied them justice, but they all left praising his name. He had caused them difficulty. I want to encourage you. It's interesting. Our hearts are a great gift from God given to us. But the way that we feel about something, if it doesn't fall in accordance with Scripture, what's right is still what's right. And even though we feel like it should be one way, if, God, if God's word says it's another, that's just the way it is. And that's how it has to be. Silly example, but I hope it sticks with you. Um, I got three of my kiddos, and it was real easy to say no to them when they, when they, uh, when they pitch a fit, okay? Um, but then the Lord sent us Zeke, all right? Zeke's our youngest. Zeke's four and a half. And uh, when the Lord sent us Zeke, he is hard to say no to, okay? He has got my dad's crystal blue eyes, all right? Not only that, he has a huge bottom lip, okay, that he will stick out whenever he wants his way. Uh, and he also, just again, big blue eyes, crystal blue eyes, huge lip. He, when he cries, he's a heaver. <gasps> you know, he's one of those. He does the heave cry. And he has this gift. In those crystal blue eyes, the way he cries, he's a cascade crier. Have you ever had a cascade crier? That's where they all well up and then, I mean, they just fall. They cascade down. He has the most beautiful cry of any child I've ever seen. Okay, just the way it goes. And here's the other thing. He also calls Autumn and I his best friend. And so he'll say, Dad, you're my best friend. You're my best friend. And when he gets mad... Crystal blue eyes, crying, big lip, cascade crying, and he goes, you're not my best friend anymore, all right? And here's the deal. I'm telling you, with the other three, it was real easy to just be like, hey, forget it. Go to your room. You're in timeout. With him, it's just like, oh my gosh, right? You just hear, you're not my best friend anymore. You see the cascade tears. And it's hard to say no to Zeke. That, I mean, you just look at him like, fine, go play in the street. Go ahead. Okay, he's trying to protect you, but just watch for 18 wheelers. All right, good luck. <laughs> you don't do that. You know why? He's my child and I love him because I care for him. So I've got to draw the line. I've got to draw the box. And even though I don't feel like punishing him, it's the right thing to do. Even though I don't feel like putting the boundaries around him, it's the right thing to do. It's why John chapter 10, verse 10 says this, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus says, but I have come that they might have life and what? Have it to the full. No part of scripture is meant to limit you. All of scripture is that we might experience life to the full. Amen. And the thief shows up and their goal, just like Gollum, is they want your ring. They want your power. 
They want what it is that you have that they don't. Don't fall for it. And sometimes, friends, listen to me. Your heart can lie to you. Your heart can lie to you. The Holy Spirit does not. But your seed of your emotions, it can lie to you. I want to prove it to you. One last little verse. Look at Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah 17. And we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. Some of you might need to underline and memorize these verses. You ready for this? This is the Lord speaking through Jeremiah. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Underline who can understand it. The idea is we have these feelings, we have these emotions, and it's hard for us to discern what it means. It feels like I want to tell my son yes, even when I know in my head I'm supposed to put the boundaries around him. Look at verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward the man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. I love this because the picture here is that God looks at us even in the pain and struggle of our emotion, trying to sift through why we feel the way we feel, what's causing us to be tugged in these different directions. And the Lord stands up and says, I know what's best for you. Cling to my word, hold to it in all things, and then I will help you sift through these emotions and why you feel the way you feel. What a powerful word for us. It begs the question, and this is a tough one. You ready? Are you allowing your heart to be stolen? Are you allowing your heart to be stolen today? Are there people in your life that are standing at the city gate, winning your heart, but denying you justice? Let me ask that again. Are there people standing at your city gate theologically, winning your heart, but denying you justice. All they got to do is go into the city. All they got to do is make the move towards David. But instead, they fall for the trappings of someone who is an illegitimate leader. Thanks for listening. Heavy questions today, but this is a really special passage. Y'all ready? Let's bow our heads for prayer.